The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, have charged the police officer who shot and killed Rayshard Brooks with 11 counts, including aggravated murder. It's fairly remarkable. In that video, it shows Brooks scuffling with officers, fleeing, and then firing a taser at an officer. But the Fulton County DA, Paul Howard, alleges that, quote, Mr. Brooks never presented himself as a threat. Howard also details more than two minutes that Brooks was denied medical attention by the officers. Even more remarkably, something that almost never happens is happening in this case. We have had something quite remarkable to happen in this case, and it involves the testimony of the other officer, Devin Brosnan, because Officer Brosnan has now become a state's witness. Howard said it was the first time in 40 such cases in Atlanta in which an officer has come forward to do this. The Atlanta PD, of which the charged officers are a part, is, according to the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies, 62% minority. That's exactly representative of the demographics of Atlanta. Atlanta's 38% non-Hispanic whites. And while a majority-minority police force, or just a representative police force, isn't a cure-all for police violence, obviously, as we're seeing here, it does help. Mapping Police Violence, the website, found that when departments become more than 35% African-American, there is a measurable decrease in the likelihood to use force against African-Americans. I've done some research. Out of the police forces that oversee populations of more than 100,000, 21 are majority non-white forces. Out of curiosity, I tested this premise. There are no majority-minority police forces where the white citizens policed by the majority-minority police are killed, brutalized, abused disproportionately. Where, of course, we know that it is pretty common, you might even say the norm, to have police forces where Caucasians are overrepresented on the force and where black citizens are disproportionately killed, abused, arrested, policed. Now, the Birmingham, Alabama police force, majority, 60%, 60 or so percent, majority, minority, did kill three white people and four black people over the last seven years, according to mapping police violence. Laredo, Texas, which has a 98% Hispanic police force, pretty much reflective of the city, did kill a white man within the last seven years. But when you have such small numbers, one or two shootings, and in all those cases they were legally justified, do skew the numbers. It is the case, if you were wondering, that there are no cities where the whites of the city feel overwhelmed, oppressed, brutalized, or powerless by a police force comprised of officers of a different race than they are. But the other way, of course, this happens all the time. It doesn't actually seem like too interesting of a fact, does it? No, it doesn't. Maybe that's why it's notable. On the show today, I spiel about you, Texas. The eyes and ears of a nation are upon you. But first, John Dickerson has moderated presidential debates, interviewed presidents, and reported on the decisions of presidents. The whole time, he's always thought, no matter what they say or how they answer or what they do, it's never good enough. Sometimes just because it really isn't good, but other times, it's the nature of the job. Can the job, such as its demands are, 
ever be done satisfactorily. After all, it is the hardest job in the world, the American president. That's also the name of the book, written with a look at efficiency, best practices, and better understanding the monumental task that is Commander-in-Chief. John Dickerson, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So John Dickerson is here, so I'm going to give him a, a really weird intro, and here it goes. I enjoy books where the subtitle answers the question asked or implied by the title. Let me give you a couple examples. If only Philip K. Dick had the subtitle of a book where the subtitle was, no, they don't dream of sheep at all. You totally misunderstand androids. Or if only a business book of the 80s or 90s had a subtitle, no one moved your cheese. You're crazy. Well, that puts me in the mindset of Mr. Dickerson's latest magnum opus, The Hardest Job in the World, subtitle, the American presidency. And if you weren't convinced going in, you are now. John Dickerson is a 60 Minutes correspondent and co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest. Thanks for joining me, John. Oh, Mike, it's good to be back. So we could start with specific presidents or the ideas of the institution, but let's start with this. This is not usually how governments organize, where the head of state is also the head of government. What about that? For all the difficulties of the American presidency, how much easier would it be if we just separated the state from government and just right. took away the ceremonial aspects? So had a prime minister and a king. I mean, not in America, we wouldn't have a king, but, you know, had somebody who did the ceremony and somebody who did the... Well, I don't know if we could, could walk the cat back because... The president gains their ceremonial power in part from their power to get things done. Um, and so I don't know if we could handle because what would we what would would imbue the ceremonial president with power? Where would they get it from that would make people listen to them, except if by the voters who handed their power to the, the president to do things on their behalf? And that's where you get your swagger as a president is that everybody said, I will grant you my power 
and you act on my behalf, and that gives you such stature that you can then operate in this ceremonial vein. Well, I'm just thinking from this point on, given what the presidency has become, what if America were to institute a role like prime minister, someone to look over government? And then I think a lot of people would naturally pay attention to the president. Our current president really only wants to concern himself with the ceremonial. Totally impractical, but at this point it might work out. Well, you're right. I mean, so let's imagine if you and I had to confect this. You could do it one of two ways. You could just implant a celebrity who has national stature because of what they've done in their life. So, you know, it would probably be somebody who has a mix of celebrity from the arts or theater and the movies, but has also been a philanthropist and has maybe run something as well. Somebody who is seen as just having incredible throw weight in America who could play the ceremonial role and would have power in their sphere to be benevolent on behalf of various causes. And I mean, and you see a little of this, if you look and read what Tim Cook wrote in response to the George Floyd murder, I mean, it's what you expect presidents to say. It is a deeply felt, sweeping assessment of where we are right now and a call to the country and to his company to do better, not just for the moment, but in a sustained fashion because of Apple's place in the culture, that's sending a big noise. So you could imagine somebody like that with a little more sort of sort of TV star power elevating themselves and then having a completely workmanlike president who just got stuck to the facts, ma'am. The alternative is you elect somebody who has more flair, more sizzle. Uh, you know, this is the sizzle stake problem, as Barack Obama put it, who has the sizzle, you elect them, and then they just hire great what would essentially be chief operating officers, chief technology officers, chief, basically about five chiefs of staff underneath them to do the operations of government. Yeah, and we always say, well, such a power of the president is the bully pulpit, but maybe we, I think we overemphasize that. Sometimes the power of the president is just getting down to nuts and bolts and governing. Right. I mean, this is what animated me through this whole process was was basically going back to the original blueprint and saying, what is the job? And when we look at each individual aspect of it, for example, the communications piece that you were just talking about, what part of that communications piece is vital and what part do we way, way, way overemphasize and overempower? And usually I came across things that sort of upended my original view. There was a long time where because we tend to cover campaigns and presidencies with sort of theater review, that it's all in our interest to cover speeches as if they are actually effective things because Mm -hmm. you stuff them full of meaning and then you can just basically, you know, analyze the words, which is what most of us want to do. But in a lot of cases, the speeches aren't really doing that much. You know, the State of the Union doesn't do much. The process of deciding what to put in the State of the Union is quite interesting, but it's interesting only for dull people who are interested in priority setting and management inside White Houses. But there are moments like the one we're in right now where if you look at the speech that LBJ gives after Selma, it is an extraordinary moment where a president takes a public event and grabs it for the purpose of, of making progress. Um, and that is a place where a president can galvanize a moment. There is no opportunity for that in the, in the current moment with respect to race and even COVID-19 that, that a president could take. 
Right. So you're generally your critique of campaigns and campaign coverage is that we emphasize or we act as if this is an exercise in selecting for a certain skill set. The problem is the job requires a totally different and sometimes opposite skill set. And yeah, that's a problem. You've got it exactly right. And the only thing I would add is it requires an opposite skill set. And sometimes our campaigns sort of train us and the candidates to elevate skills that don't matter so much. The communication skill would be one of them. I mean, if you think about what happens in campaigns, you know, the ability to make small differences seem catastrophic and, um, you know, a key to the heart of the republic, right? That's a skill mm-hmm. you learn in campaigns, but it isn't what you need to do as a person who governs. A- attack is what campaigns are all about. Governing is more about building consensus and conciliation and, and restraint of not going for the throat when the moment presents. And that's, again, why I tried to go back to the original blueprint, you know, because the original blueprint was a nice little colonial, you know, with a single room and a big fireplace. And then over time, we've added all kinds of wings. And there's all this stuff that's been bolted onto the to the structure. and, And some of it's useful. Some of it isn't. Some of it's misshapen. And the communications piece has changed dramatically. You know, before television, communication was just so much different and before radio and so on. But if indeed the president is the presidency is impossible, and as you point out, every ten or twenty years someone writes a book literally with that title, The Impossible <laughs> Presidency. Jeremy Surrey was on the gist, and you and I both talked about him. If it's so impossible, then is there a real um, is it extremely important that we reconstruct our conception of campaigns to select to best select the person who's not going to be able to do the job anyway. I guess you could argue maybe it's a Sisyphean task, but at least Sisyphus is more up to it than Don Knotts would be. That's exactly right. And by the way, anybody who makes a Don Knotts reference (laughs) is just automatically (laughs) elevated to um, the upper echelons because um, anybody who doesn't know who Don Knotts is should go look him up and then sort of rest in in the beauty of that analogy. So that's right. I mean, there are two approaches. One is you need Sisyphus at least to keep that boulder pushing back up the hill, because if you don't, we'll all get flattened by it, if that indeed is the way the boulder worked. The second is, okay, while you're electing good people to do the job as, as it's conceived now, let's focus on doing other things like pushing Congress to do more, thinking more about governors and mayors and their role in the system, and also readjusting our expectations and our view of the complexity of the world. You know, not only do we have to elect somebody who understands how to build teams, understands how to prioritize, has a sense of character that matches the kind of character the job requires, but then just simply by shifting ourselves into that mindset, I think this is true. I mean, this is based on just all the reporting I did. I might be wrong, and people can... I mean, my hope is with the book that people will read it and then say, oh, I'm with him there, but I'm not going to follow him all the way to the depot. I'm going to get off here at this argument because I think it goes over here. But at least if you change your mindset on what you're looking for, that might change the way we have certain conversations. And that might lead to, you know, just a different way of assessing the job, which might say, you know what, this is not the president's job. Somebody else should be handling this. Right. Now, let me ask you about going back to the original blueprint. I'm glad you did. But as you note in the book, even the founding fathers didn't concentrate too much on the executive because they knew it would be George Washington. And so he'd pretty much define it. 
But what is the value of that? How is that so much different than, say, a jurist who is a constitutional originalist whose theories on how we live now in 2020 and email is something like, well, press literally means something that Gutenberg invented. I don't want us not to consider history, but times were so different, really, how valuable is the original blueprint? Well, it, it should be a place of stability. It should be a cornerstone. But obviously, the book document only goes so far because it had a huge internal contradiction and in that it was a liberty document that was founded on and, in fact, could only be ratified by the agreement that a certain portion of the country would be enslaved. So it had a whopping huge error right at its center. But Frederick Douglass, in arguing his case for ending slavery, uses the ideas that are in a part of that document. So it has value even in undoing its greatest flaw. So for me, what is important about both the document, but also the four months that they sweated it out in Philadelphia, is the thinking that was at the center of it, both about the shared powers uh, system and also about the baleful effect of ambition and the reason you needed both personal checks against ambition, which we can call character, but then also systemic structural checks against that system. Because... When you hear them talking about the flaws at the center of human nature, which is either the ambition that runs away, that um, leaders, their ambition is unstoppable, and there's a kind of madness that comes when your ambition is is coupled with power. And then you also think about the mob, which they were just as fearful uh, as they were, in fact, more fearful than the monarch. They're dealing with exactly the basic stuff that we're dealing with today. And so they wrestled in a very concentrated way These were smart people. The only problem is they were not diverse at all. But I mean, they were quite smart and they spent a great deal of time trying to think through these problems that are still clanging around in our system today. So the presidency is hard. Of course, it's hard. But is it less hard for a president whose agenda is more along the lines of let's cut regulation Let's have small government. Let's be isolationist president who doesn't like treaties. And this is this is not an implication. You know, this is not side eye at the current uh, president. It's in general, I'm asking if your ambitions are more of a remaking of society versus Mm -hmm. a retrenchment. Isn't it harder for the remaker than the retrencher? I think so. Yes, because implicit in the remaking is you're going to have your hands on everything. And that means you have to. So it increases your to-do list and it implicitly increases it to anything that happens because you can't say, look, that's just not in my purview. That's not a part of the job. It's amazing, by the way, when you go back and look at Eisenhower or Grover Cleveland or any of the presidents who faced with a national disaster or a problem basically said, you know, it's not the president's job, not the executive branch's role. That other than, I mean, Clearly, President Trump has said that explicitly and certainly behaved that way implicitly with respect to the COVID response from governors. Um, The problem is that there have been all of these practice tests uh, where the federal government and the executive branch have sat down and done tabletop exercises about what to do in a pandemic and then tabletop exercises about what to do in a pandemic that starts in China. So if if the executive branch has been preparing for something to happen, you can't then, when it happens, say, oh, this is somebody else's job to do. Any president that seeks to pare down the office has to worry, and this is why it's such a hard job. You go in there, and there's no blueprint for the organizational chart. Everybody has to mm-hmm. kind of make it up as they go along. Right. And sometimes there's not even a blueprint. The last guy gives you a weird bicycle with twisted spokes (laughs) mounted on a plank. 
Exactly. And you're referring there to the president that uh, Dick Cheney left for Hamilton Jordan, who was not Carter's chief of staff until later, telling him basically the reason, uh, dear listener, that they gave him a bicycle wheel is that Gerald Ford coming in after Nixon said, you know, I want to be accessible to everybody. And, and so the idea was he was the hub of the bicycle wheel and the spokes were represented all the different people that could come in and see President Ford. And that, of course, was a collapsing failure because there's just too much to do and you can't always be tending to the needs of each person. And often you need a chief of staff to basically be, as uh, Haldeman was described by Nixon, your sh- chief son of a bitch, to be the person who says no so that you can retain your good graces with your staff. So what happened was basically... Cheney's staff gave him the wheel at the end of the administration, broke all of the spokes and had just one, which represented the relationship between staffers, Cheney and Ford. If you wanted to get to the president, you had to go through Cheney. And he was arguing that's what Carter should do. Carter didn't listen. And it was a disaster. So um, but I think that if you if, if you want to pair back you have to first figure out what is the smartest organizational chart. And I feel about the presidency, about what they say with a book, which is when you're done writing it, you've taught yourself how to write it and you're ready to write it. The problem is it's done and it's been published. So in the presidency, you don't really know how to run the place until you've run the place. And the problem is the minute you get in there, your inbox starts filling with snakes and you can't you can't reorganize it while you're doing it. And that's what makes it so hard. So if you're paring down the challenges, am I cutting in the right place? Because, boy, if I cut the pandemic response a part of the national security team, I'm going to be in big trouble when we get hit by a pandemic. Yeah, right. So the last big thing to talk about is, and listeners to the gist should know, there's a lot of Trump in this book. But what I had to do was I changed the way I approached the book as I was reading it. I kept falling into a comparison with the current moment and the way Trump does the presidency is in no way aligned with best practices or even sane practices. How did you either compartmentalize or strategize or think about how you would approach the Trump presidency and how and when you would slot it into the rest of this long exercise and scholarship that the book represents? It was a big, big challenge. It was a challenge for the book and it was a challenge for the piece, the cover story in The Atlantic that I wrote a couple of years ago that was a kind of first swing at this. You know, but it was a constant challenge because here's the other complexity with Donald Trump is not only do you have the necessary and uh, reasonable urge to measure him by the standards of the office and whether he meets them or breaks them, but he's also a fascinating tool that helps you understand the office. So he is clearly the president who does not fit the mold. And so you can talk about the way in which he doesn't fit the mold, but he also shows you those empty spaces in the mold. And then you think, well, is, should, is, is the mold built the right way? So you then have to separate what the president is, his critique versus his remedies. And I go into that analogy, which might fall apart, which is, you know, with Henry Ford. I mean, so, you know, a good president has both the creative new way of looking at something, but then also has a dedication to execution so that they're not just saying, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, but offering no new pathway. You have to do both. So I just tried basically to use the president the way I used any other president, which was to illuminate an aspect of the office that I thought was interesting and that I was trying to explore. And because he's the sitting president, you know, again, as you said at the beginning of the question, it's your your instinct is to do that because he's the one who's there. So if the office was broken before Donald Trump got into it, 
regardless of what you may think about him, there are still those underlying problems that exist. And you shouldn't let the individual obscure those problems, because that's one of the problems with the presidency is we tend to define it by the person who's in it at the moment. And that shouldn't be right. We don't do that in other things. So that's the kind of very difficult process. And it was really um, probably one of the biggest challenges of the book. John Dickerson is the author of The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. He's, of course, on the Slate Political Gab Fest. He writes for The Atlantic, and he's a correspondent on CBS's 60 Minutes. And you'll find him on many other CBS shows. He's on Face the Nation talking to Margaret Brennan this week. Thanks so much, John. Mike, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. And now the spiel. Athletes at the University of Texas have made demands of their administration in advancing the agenda of Black Lives Matter. They want to rename athletic facilities for black pioneers, rename university buildings that were named after members of the Confederacy, remove a statue of Jim Hogg, father of Ima Hogg. That's not why, but it is true. He, that, that was his daughter's name. And they say, these black athletes say they won't participate in extra fundraising or recruitment until their demands are met. Not to be overdramatic, but as a factual matter, the contract between scholarship athletes and a university is quite similar to the contracts that were used in involuntary servitude. I have talked about that in the last podcast. That's not what I'm here to talk about. Here's what I'm here to talk about. KHOU Houston reporting. And here's the one that some fans are going to struggle with. The players say they want the song The Eyes of Texas replaced with a new song without racist undertones. Racist undertones? Let's examine the lyrics. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. The eyes of Texas are upon you cannot get away. Do not think you can escape them at night or early in the morn. The eyes of Texas are upon you till Gabriel blows his horn. sung by students, players, and stadiums filled with 100,000 people after UT games. So where is the racist element? The New York Times headline, Texas football players call on university to drop a song steeped in racist history, unbeknown to many students and alumni. The song can be traced back to Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general. Okay, though the song was written by a Texas undergrad in 1903, and Robert E. Lee died in 1870, but it is true the connection does run through a former University of Texas president. William Prather was a student at Washington and Lee University. You know who the Lee was. He was president of the school when Prather was a law student there, though it was called Washington and Lee only after Lee left. Otherwise, that would have been a great recruiting tool. You got to teach here, Robert E. Lee. And Robert E. Lee would always tell his students, the eyes of the South are upon you. Prather liked that phrase, and he brought it to Texas. There wasn't too much nefarious behind this statement. What Lee was saying, what Prather was saying is behave as though you have the honor of your region or your state at stake. Although, to be fair, the honor of the South, Texas in 1903, was viewed through today's lens. Let us just not say it wasn't anti-racist. Now, the song, The Eyes of Texas Are Upon You, if you know the song, was set to... I've been working on the railroad. Don't believe me? Mashup time. I've been working on the railroad to pass the time away. Can't you hear the whistle blowing? 
you hear the whistle blowing? Dying to blow your horn. So the question is now, are we going to cancel I've been working on the railroad? Is I've been working on the railroad all of a sudden racist? No. I don't mean it's not racist. I don't mean not all of a sudden. From the beginning, it was steeped in racism. I've been reading up on this. Here is a musicologist, Dr. Katya Ermoleva, argues in Medium, I've been working on the railroad is based on the minstrel tune Levy song, who caricaturing the African-American laborers who built the levy and railroad systems in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And especially racial, if not downright racist, is the Someone's in the Kitchen with Dinah part, which was grafted onto the song later. Someone's in the kitchen, I know. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah, strumming on the old banjo. Wait, there's a problem with Dinah? Sure. It's been argued that Dinah was widely understood to be the name of a female slave at least according to Wikipedia, which cites a footnote from an article in 1850, though I haven't been able to get my hands on much more confirmation than that. It is plausible, though. Dinah was a character in Uncle Tom's Cabin, and as the title of the character or the name of the character, Aunt Dinah indicates the character was enslaved. So part of I've Been Working on the Railroad references a slave, it would seem. The origins of the tune were meant for the minstrel stage. The Texan lyrics of the version of the song did come from an idea sparked by Robert E. Lee. And it was sung by performers in blackface. Then again, so was Oh Susanna and Camp Town Races, Duda Duda, and probably any song of middling popularity in 1840. Should the singing of the eyes of Texas end at Texas? Well, it's easy for me to pass judgment. I am not at all invested in the fun and tradition of singing them. And if you scoff at the idea of a tradition that's fun versus racism, well, I at least want to give some credence to the traditionalists here. Because I do know that rooting for a college football team is as deep an intergenerational bond as there is in lots of America. And many of the people who engage in the tradition really don't want to give offense. They think about the song as especially anodyne and just something that they did and their parents did and their grandparents did. And they can't imagine it doing any harm to anyone. They don't mean or intend for it to do harm. They don't think there is inherent harm in it. And perhaps even when they are presented with the history, just going by the reactions to this demand, many University of Texas fans aren't terribly persuaded. It is a bit of a daisy chain from Lee to Prather with a nursery rhyme grafted on. It's not meant to offend. Maybe it's not actually literally in the text offensive. It's not a dog whistle. It's not a call to racism. It's not coded language. It happens to stem from the place where it stemmed from. However, I have to think about the principles that I have that I've previously articulated here. And one is, am I offending? Are black students genuinely offended? Does it aggrieve, discomfort, or in any way cause angst among these black student athletes whose running and blocking and tackling compel over 100,000 Texans to fill the ninth or 10th largest stadium in the world on half a dozen Saturdays in the fall? I think you have to credit that. You have to take their feelings into account. But I also say there has to be some factual basis to the feelings. The connections to insidious racism of the past is indirect, but it is still there. So here's how I was thinking of it. If I was an undergraduate at Texas and I had a friend who was a black athlete at the school and he or she said to me, look, I find it offensive. The song is something that I can't not think about when I'm made to sing it every time 
100,000 mostly white people join me in a stadium. I think of the roots of the song. I think of Robert E. Lee. I can't not think about that. And it takes me out of what should be a celebratory moment. So let's assume we just beat TCU. And instead of celebrating that, what does it do? It reminds me of the history of oppression of my people in this country. And that weighs on me. All right. If, if someone told me that, what would I say to him? Would I have a counter argument? I'd have to say I can't disagree with you. And in fact, I think I'd have to be compelled to support that stance. Maybe one day we could get to a place where the black students of Texas say, we've made so much progress that you can all have that song back. Or maybe in the meantime, a different, better song will be adopted. Perhaps a Lone Star State riff on John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt until it's revealed Mr. Schmidt made inappropriate remarks in a group text. Could happen. But the sacrifice that's being asked, a fun tradition, a small, tiny piece of your culture in an age when you really do have a whole lot of culture left, It's a small price to offer some measure of comfort to young black people, athletes, in fact, who for free bring you so much joy. If you say and mean black lives matter, then making a sacrifice for that cause should make you feel good, actually. If the sacrifice is too much to bear, well, then I can't argue you off your point, but it doesn't seem like your burden is terribly heavy. Anyway, maybe Texas can just go with classical music at games. For instance, let's take the cello section from the Austro-Hungarian composer Franz von Supp, operetta Dichter and Bauer. Wait, that wasn't... Oh man, the eyes of the Austro-Hungarian Empire are upon me. that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the associate producer of The Gist. She knows that if the melody to Twinkle Twinkle is ever called into question, well, there goes Baba Black Sheep and ABC. Daniel Schrader is The Gist producer. He'd have gone with Screech over Don Knotts as my go-to squirrely weak man. It's a generational thing, but I gotta say, Knotts did star in The Ghost and Mrs. Chicken, and that's a clincher. The Gist. I endeavor to bring you accuracy. So I do things like look up audio files on how to pronounce Franz von Supp. Here's what I found. Franz von Suppe. Franz von Suppe. Suppe. Franz von Suppe. That, by the way, from the website, easypronounce.com. Umperu deperu, Suppe And thanks for listening. <laughs>